This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. Today, it's kind of one of our zine scene episodes, and we're going to be looking at four articles written by John Keel, John A. Keel, for Saga Magazine in the late 1960s. So we're going to talk a little bit about Saga Magazine. We saw it a bit in our last episode about Ted Owens, the PK man. And we're going to look at some great articles that were extensive and in-depth and sort of brought some different UFO stories into more of a mainstream publication. We're also, during the midway break, going to talk about uh, or respond to the feedback we got about our Ted Owens slash PK man episode that we weren't able to do last week because of travel. So let's go ahead and get started. Now, if you've listened to the show for any length of time or been involved in the flying saucer scene, I hate saying it that way, the flying saucer scene for any amount of time, you've probably come across the writings of John Keel. At the very least, probably you've heard of the Mothman prophecies. We've done episodes on John Keel in the past, and I encourage you to look those up in the archives. But we haven't talked extensively about Saga Magazine. Saga Magazine was a men's magazine. Uh, I think that was the sort of generic term. And you can sort of think of Saga and other magazines like it in the 1960s and 1970s as sort of a a halfway point between the adventure pulps of the 1930s and 40s and 50s and modern men's magazines like Maxim and, and FHM and, and, and things like that. It's not it, it's, I don't know, Playboy without the nudity. I don't know if that's a good way to say it, but they're, they're definitely aimed at a male audience. Um, that is the, the target. And a lot of travel, adventure, exciting stories, stereo reviews, car reviews, movie reviews, things like that, and a surprising number of articles about UFOs and the paranormal – many of which were written by John Keel. And this was, as you might remember from last time, the magazine in which, um, in which Otto Binder wrote articles about Ted Owens, the PK man. Now, Keel contributed a number of different types of articles to Saga. Uh, some of them were very extensive. Some were regular columns. He had a regular column about sort of ancient astronaut, ancient mysteries type of topics and how they might have tied into the UFOs. We're not going to look at any of those because I don't like that stuff. He also published previews or excerpts from some of his books. We're not going to be covering those because we've probably talked about the books or will at some point. These articles weren't original research, but often they were a good synthesis of available stories sort of concentrated into categories of type of UFO encounter or sightings, and they were presented to a more mainstream audience. And these stories came from places like Flying Saucer Review, the the British UFO magazine, or the books by Coral Lorenzen, uh, like the UFO occupant books and things like that. They often reflect a certain viewpoint, and, and we'll see 
Keel's viewpoint sort of come through in these articles from the late 1960s. The four articles we're going to be looking at, first is the UFO kidnappers, second will be UFOs, agents of terror, we'll be looking at strange messages from the flying saucers, and finally, secret UFO bases across the U.S. So we're going to get started with the UFO kidnappers, which appeared in the February 1967 issue of Saga Magazine. Keel begins UFO Kidnappers with the story of William Carolus, a real estate man from Cape Coral, Florida. Real estate man is, is Keel's word. He was driving along uh, the Tamiami Trail, which is a thing, a, a, a road that I've never seen referenced anywhere else except the Warren Zevon song Seminole Bingo. So I had to stop writing this episode and play Seminole Bingo a few times. I think I have five different versions of that song, which is kind of excessive. I, I do realize that. So Carolus, the real estate man, was driving along the Tamiami Trail in his convertible, enjoying the spring air in May of 1967. Suddenly he notices a star, a strange star ahead of him, but the star is moving. It's a glittering blob of blue-green light a hundred feet across. It's chasing him. He's trying to outrun it. He's doing over 100 miles an hour, eventually hits 115 miles an hour, drives to the police station, makes a report about what he'd seen. The cop there, Officer Dampier, said that Curlis, quote, did not appear overly tired, nor had the symptoms of drinking. I think this man was telling the truth. He was right scared. So Keel uses this story to illustrate that there's a game that the UFOs are playing, and they chase planes, they chase people in cars, they chase boats. But what happens when they actually catch a driver? One of the problems, Keel explains, is that there is some reluctance to understand what exactly is going on on the part of the authorities. After 20 years of mystifying incidents, most of which have been casually explained away by the United States Air Force as hallucinations and vicious clouds of swamp gas, some of the pieces of this baffling puzzle are beginning to fit into place. The unidentified flying objects are engaged in a bewildering series of research studies which make the efforts of our leading science fiction writers seem like Mickey Mouse comic strips. So we're getting into the theory that whatever is happening is part of an experiment where mankind, humanity, is being tested or examined in some way. Keel goes on to explain that in 1965 and 1966, there was, quote, a fantastic new phase in the worldwide activities of the UFOs and their elusive pilots, end quote. He explains that there were automobile chases en masse, UFO landings occurring in large scales in a dozen countries, and clouds of swamp gas landing on a highway in South Africa, frightening two police officers and setting fire to the tar on the road. The swamp gas reference is, of course, a bit tongue-in-cheek. Typical of the types of stories that Keel is seeing increasingly during 65 and 66 is this tale of two police officers. At 5 a.m. on the morning of April 17, 1966, two police officers in Ravenna, Ohio, did a turnabout and pursued a flying saucer instead of being pursued by it. It flew low over Highway 224, and at times during the 85-mile chase that covered two states, it would hover and wait for the police car to catch up with it before scooting off again. Another policeman, William L. Stevens Jr. of Richmond, Virginia, had the same exasperating experience at 3.30 a.m. on June 24, 1966, when he sighted a dirigible-shaped object about 125 feet long and went after it. He sped up to 110 miles per hour, but the thing got away. This swamp gas is slippery stuff. 
Kiel shares some other stories, including a story of a man named Telemaco Xavier in Brazil. Now, this is a little more sinister. It's not just a chase. It's what happens when the UFO kidnappers allegedly catch up to you. Xavier disappeared on the night of September 16th, 1962, near a remote jungle village in northern Brazil. Shortly before he went into limbo, workmen on a rubber plantation in Barcelos, Amazonas, reported seeing a huge silvery disc hovering over the Paduri River and spraying sparks. The local police investigated and learned that 17 chickens, 6 pigs, and 2 cows had vanished from the village at the same time. A few days later, Telemaco Xavier left a soccer match in the village of Via Conicinero and started to walk home alone along a dark jungle road. He was never seen again, and a thorough search of the region failed to turn up any trace of him. But one workman did come forward with a very bizarre story. He said that he had seen a glowing, round-shaped object giving off sparks come down in a clearing, and that three men had jumped out of it and grabbed a person who was walking past. The victim put up a fight, but his assailants managed to drag him into their craft, which took off vertically and disappeared at high speed. Investigation by the authorities revealed signs of a struggle where the worker said the fight had taken place, said the newspapers in Rio. It seems evident, beyond a doubt, that Mr. Telemaco Xavier was kidnapped by a flying disc. So far in this article, you, you should be getting an idea of, of the way some of these sort of extensive looks at a particular aspect of the UFO phenomenon would work as John Keel contributed these to Saga magazine. You've got a basic framework, in this case, UFOs chasing and possibly kidnapping witnesses. And then to that framework, he adds a number of different types of story. Uh, providing enough background detail on various aspects of the UFO phenomenon and history and personalities, explaining who Donald Kehoe is, explaining what NICAP is, providing a great deal of background information. It really is a, a very well-done style of article. Keel then goes into some depth on the Betty and Barney Hill case as well. And we don't have time really to go into that. We should do an episode on Betty and Barney Hill. I don't know. It's it's one of those massive giant cases that, that sometimes intimidates me. Keel also gets in another really good dig at the Air Force. If you believe in swamp gas, you should be able to find an equally plausible explanation for these cases, even though they are backed by mounds of newspaper clippings and sworn affidavits of witnesses and carefully detailed police records. The U.S. Air Force doesn't believe in such documentation. In fact, the Air Force doesn't seem to believe in their own records, and they now have a great mass of data on the disappearance of entire planes and crews. I get that it's 1967 and the swamp gas thing is still pretty much there in the public consciousness, or at least the ufological public consciousness, but man, the constant swamp gas references in this article, and Maybe, maybe not. Maybe constant isn't the right word, but the continual swamp gas references just sound like you're you're just you're just beating that joke into the ground. So this article in the UFO Kidnappers does cover the story of Betty and Barney Hill's abduction. It also, and this is the perfect place to talk about this story uh, for John Keel. It talks about the Antonio Villas-Boas case as well, which we've covered on the show. I think the episode where we looked at the UFO occupants book by Coral Lorenzen. So. It's a good article. It goes into a lot of depth, a lot of detail. It is about 15 pages, 12, 15 pages of, of small three-column 
print. Not many photographs. The photographs that are there are pretty spectacular, actually. And the art, uh, if you've been on the Saucer Life social media, you've seen I've shared some of the art from some of these articles. The Flying Saucer art in Saga magazine was always just outstanding. Next up, in October 1967's issue of Saga magazine, we have the mysterious men in black UFO agents of terror. And this is a lot of this is um, things that you will later see expanded upon in the Mothman prophecies, especially the well, obviously, especially the men in black versions of that. But there are some good stories here as well, sort of separate from that and some interesting speculation about what might be behind the Men in Black phenomenon. And Keel starts off by saying uh, there's a story, and it may sound like the plot of the recent hit movie Blow Up, which I've never heard of, but Keel alleges this happened several months before that movie was released. Late in 1966, a professional photographer in California was out on a routine assignment when he heard an eerie whirring sound overhead. He looked out of his car and was stunned to see a huge, unearthly metallic disc hovering directly over him. Fortunately, he was well-equipped with excellent cameras and lenses, and he was able to click his shutter several times before the machine shot straight up and vanished. Believing that he might have some sensational and highly sellable photographs, he rushed back to his studio and dunked the film into the developer. The photos turned out even better than he had expected, and the photographer delightedly made several enlargements and hung them up to dry. Feeling quite pleased with himself, he left his studio for a few hours. He did not tell anyone about the UFO pictures. No one knew that he had taken them. But when he returned to his dark room later, he discovered that someone had broken in and stolen all the prints and negatives. They did not touch any of his other pictures, nor did they attempt to steal any of his valuable equipment. It was obvious that whoever entered his studio had been after only one thing, the UFO pictures. This is another lengthy article, 10, 12 pages or so. And early on, sort of taking off of this, you know, fo stolen photos and stolen negatives um, story, from the photographer, Keel talks about instances where officials of one kind or another have demanded photographs back from witnesses and trying to confiscate photographic evidence. Somebody somewhere doesn't want certain types of UFO photographs to be seen. In fact, there are several somebodies from several different independent groups all working to suppress information about UFOs, collect negatives and prints of good photos, and wipe away whatever traces may be left behind by these mysterious objects. Some of these agents are directly employed by the United States government and are following orders. Others seem to be playing the same game for reasons of their own and are actually being hunted by the government agents. So as of yet, there's no attempt to identify the men in black as anything other than government agents of some kind or agents of some kind, the Air Force, other agencies. It is clear that there were some instances in the late 1960s of people impersonating Air Force personnel in order to intimidate UFO witnesses. And Keel presents a reproduction of a memo from the Air Force Office of the Chief of Staff from March of 1967 to this effect. Subject, impersonations of Air Force officers. Information, not verifiable, has reached HQ USAF that persons claiming to represent the Air Force or other defense establishments have contacted citizens who have cited unidentified flying objects. In one reported case, an individual in civilian clothes who represented himself as a member of NORAD demanded and received photos belonging to a private citizen. 
In another, a person in an Air Force uniform approached local police and other citizens who had sighted a UFO, assembled them in a schoolroom, and told them that they did not see what they thought they saw, and they should not talk to anyone about the sighting. All military and civilian personnel, and particularly information officers and UFO investigating officers who hear of such reports, should immediately notify their local OSI offices. Hewitt T. Wellis, Lieutenant General, USAF, Assistant Vice Chief of Staff. Another angle that Keel takes in this article is looking at the Robertson panel report. If you remember from the early 1950s, I think we did an episode on this, it's in the archives, the Robertson panel was a, a CIA committee that looked at the Air Force's handling of the UFO question and came to some conclusions, uh, mostly that this could be a problem for national defense if systems got clogged with trying to identify UFO reports and that perhaps an eye should be kept on civilian UFO investigation organizations that the media could be used to debunk or demystify the UFO, uh, the UFO phenomenon. The report was made public in 1966. So when Keel talks about the Robertson panel report here in this article in 1967, it's something that a lot of readers probably didn't know about. But given the fact that there are, Keel believes, different people from different agencies involved in trying to perpetuate the UFO cover-up and the intimidation of witnesses, it's not surprising that he would bring the CIA into this. And he speculates about some possible interagency rivalry fueling some of what is going on. Could it be, however, that the CIA knew more about UFOs than they were pretending, and that the whole 1953 panel affair was merely a ruse to keep the Air Force from suspecting? They gave the Project Blue Book personnel a chance to present their case, that the flying saucers were extraterrestrial, and then they rejected the evidence as insufficient, and literally ordered the Air Force to debunk the subject, suppress the flow of future reports, and clamp down on civilian investigators. Captain Ruppelt, Major Fournette, and the other early Air Force UFO buffs left the service and were replaced by hard-headed types who followed the new line without hesitation. He then goes into some of the pre-1947 UFO-related cases that happened during World War II and, and a bit before, such as the Foo Fighters and the Ghost Rockets over Scandinavia. He talks about General Jimmy Doolittle being sent to Sweden on a secret mission, which was never explained. Could it have had to do with the Ghost Rockets, Foo Fighters, or other UFO-type things? What did officials know before UFOs became a thing? Somebody knew a lot about flying saucers before the general public had even heard of the mystery. That somebody was ready to move when, in 1947, the whole thing broke in the newspapers. As an example of how this foreknowledge of UFOs would come in handy, Keel talks about the case of the, the sort of proto-Men in Black case of Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman and the Maury Island incident, which we've done an episode about, so we won't go into here. Now, I gotta say that Maury Island episode is one of our most popular. For a long time, it was the most downloaded episode of the show. So if you haven't heard that, go listen to it. Actually, this this whole episode about John Keel and these magazine articles is a great opportunity to go back and find some stories in the archive that you might have missed over the last five years of this being in operation here at The Saucer Life. He tells another story about 20 people being hushed up and their livelihood threatened after seeing a very, very impressive UFO. 
1955, 20 workmen were making repairs on the outside of a large factory building in southern New Jersey when a gigantic circular craft silently descended from the sky and hovered almost at ground level above the 600-car parking lot. The object was so big that it covered the entire lot, and the workmen watched it for several minutes, hardly believing their eyes. Later, as they all filed in to punch out on the time clock, a man in civilian clothes herded them all into a meeting room. We want you all to sign an oath of secrecy, he told them grimly, flourishing a sheaf of papers, promising not to tell about what you saw today. Those of you who don't want to sign needn't come into work tomorrow, or ever again. Everyone signed. Who was this man? What was the purpose of this secrecy oath? One thing is obvious, he had to know that the flying saucer was going to appear that day. These agents must have also had the necessary credentials to get them into the Navy dock and into the factory building which was engaged in classified work for the Navy. They had to know what was going to happen in advance, and they had to have a reason for suppressing the stories of the witnesses. That last portion there makes a very good point. How do the men in black know exactly how quickly to get to a witness, what the witness saw, what evidence they might have, photographs or, or material or something like that? How do they know that quickly? One explanation could be that the craft are human in origin. Another explanation could be possibly that the silence group, the agents, the men in black are not human, are as extraterrestrial as the craft might be. Keel returns to the notion of Air Force officers confiscating photographs from civilians and and talks about the Air Force's denial that they've ever done anything like this. But Keel knows differently. I know for a fact that Air Force officers or men claiming to be have seized remarkably detailed UFO pictures taken by honest American citizens. These people have shown me copies of photos whose negatives have been brazenly collected by Air Force officers. Now, it wasn't just the Air Force or the CIA that was causing trouble. There were also UFO investigators causing trouble. Kiel tells, uh, has several examples of members of NICAP, making nuisances of themselves during uh, during some investigations. Other NICAPers made such a nuisance of themselves at the Wanakway Reservoir in New Jersey that one policeman remarked, if someone says they're from NICAP, we won't even talk to them. Witnesses in Virginia, West Virginia, and Ohio have also complained about NICAP. Some of our members get a little carried away, Richard Hall, deputy director of NICAP, said recently as we discussed this problem. When we catch someone being overbearing or misrepresenting himself, we kick him out of our organization. I won't let anybody from NICAP into my house anymore, Woodrow Derenberger of Mineral Wells, West Virginia, grumbled in April. He said that a local NICAP member had harassed him, ordered him not to talk to anybody but NICAP, and annoyed him daily after he had allegedly experienced a UFO contact. You know what's coming. Check out our episode we did about Woody Derenberger and Indrid Cold a couple years ago back in the archives. Actually, this is an interesting uh, story about NICAP making itself a nuisance. There were stories, I think Brad Steiger talked about it, where people were harassing UFO witnesses saying that they were from NICAP and that they had information from Brad Steiger and John Keel and others that they should not talk to anybody about their UFO cases. So here we have examples of people saying NICAP members were being annoying. There are also other stories that there were people who basically were 
pretending to be NICAP investigators harassing witnesses as a way to dissuade them from being more open with their statements. Keel finishes off this article by talking about Woodrow Derenberger's sighting, talking about some of the Men in Black incidents in Point Pleasant during that year of 1967, the same thing he would talk about in the uh, in, in the Mothman prophecies. Overall, this is a, a fascinating article about sort of not the earliest days of the Men in Black, but the the mid-60s Men in Black as they sort of get refreshed and updated and sort of given a new coat of paint from their 1950s, they knew too much about flying saucer days. Now we're getting into the sort of weird, creepy Men in Black who might be from the government or might be from somewhere else entirely. We'll be back in a little bit with more John Keel writing in Saga Magazine. Okay, we'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode, for real, this time. Then, on the next regular episode, um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and then I was looking back through the archive, and I realized that our episode on the Year of the Humanoids, uh, that 1972-73 humanoid sighting wave, that episode was actually relatively short, which some of our episodes used to be. So I think we're going to go back to the Year of the Humanoids and cover some interesting humanoid stories that we might have missed first time around. If you like The Saucer Life and you want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content from both this show and our uh, fellow Chizo Media show, Great Lakes Lore. You can check it out at patreon.com slash Media or via the link in the show notes, or you can Google Saucer Life Patreon. That'll get you there. Uh, there are bonus episodes. There's interesting stuff. People seem to uh, People seem to enjoy it. You can check out past episodes of the show at saucerlife.com, as I've been telling you constantly today, or in the, uh, the sort of list of episodes in your favorite podcast app. We are on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan, 48480. Okay, that's the usual mid-break stuff out of the way think before we return to John Keel, we need to talk about uh, Ted Owens and PK Man and some of the feedback, some of the massive amount of feedback we received after that episode. Over on the Patreon, Albardo says, I have three, a great episode. I have three hopefully quick questions. The polar shift bit reminds me of the seemingly apropos of nothing section of Barker's They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, where he talked about a pamphlet detailing a pole shift that would send the Arctic ice sheets flying. Do you have any idea where this sort of mythos started? I can't figure it out. Neither can I. I, um, I, I need to look at the pole shift thing because it, it does come up in numerous areas. And um, yeah, it, it started somewhere. Anybody who has any ideas about that, speak up and we'll address it next week. Next, I'm interested in reading PK Man, but I'm generally skeptical of claims of professionals and sort of fringe sciences who need to validate their ideas for their jobs to exist. Like, for instance, the first Earth Battalion folks, a reference to um, they uh, they knew t- they they knew too much about goats. The men who stare at goats is Mishlove pulling secondary sources, local newspaper weather reports, or whatever, and corroborating these claims in any way. They're just so fantastical. Yeah, there is some good corroboration of those claims. And what's interesting about the PK Man book, and, and I think the most valuable thing about it, is that that Mishlove was personally involved in the case and a personal acquaintance friend might not be the the best word to describe their relationship, but Mishlove and Owens had a 
a long-standing relationship of a couple decades, and that provides some insight into Owens's abilities, um, whatever they might have been, as well as as his personality. And I think that's some of the real value of the PK Man book. And finally, have you watched the X-Files episode Rain King? It seems pretty loosely based on Owens. Yes, uh, I do like the Rain King episode, and it does kind of have that vibe. Also in the Patreon, Chris says, I think I'm obsessed with this guy now. If you're going to claim extraordinary insight, be it from Aliens, God, or Q, the cardinal rule is never to make specific testable predictions. Owens seemingly did nothing but make specific testable predictions that ended up coming true with baffling frequency. I'm not about to say that Owens was genuinely psychic. I'm sorry, that Owens was actually psychic or in contact with space intelligences, but he's much harder to dismiss out of hand than virtually any other contactee. Yes, I agree. It is very interesting. It's it's fascinating, and um, it's really good stuff. Uh, some other questions um, and comments, and, and we're not going to get to them all. I'm very sorry. Laura says, I lost track of how many times this episode I said, sometimes even out loud, how is this weather helpful, Ted? PK Man was definitely more of a villain than a superhero, going by his use of power. I never thought I would feel sorry for the CIA in the 1960s, but poor George Clark. I have actually filed an FOIA request from the CIA for anything they might have about Ted Owens to see if I can get all of the letters he wrote to George Clark and hopefully any replies that George Clark uh, sent back. Kirk says, did Mishlove or anyone go back and systematically match up the predictions Owens sent to newspapers, to the storms that actually took place to ascertain the degree of accuracy, as well as whether the storms were in any way anomalous? Uh, Yes, there was a bit of that, especially in the PK Man book. If Owens had any meaningful ability to manipulate lightning and weather, then it's sad that he was so determined to utilize it for self-aggrandizement. At the very least, he could have become a fount for scientific knowledge. And what was his endgame anyway during the earlier part of his career? Supposedly, the, suppose the CIA or another part of the government had elected to take his claim seriously. What would have happened then? That is a really, really good question um, because it seems to be all about establishing Owens's position as the space intelligence's voice to humanity, messenger to humanity. So if that were to be acknowledged, I have to guess that what would have followed would have been epic pronouncements from the space intelligence's about whatever. Kevin emails to say, there is a great Bollywood movie called PK. Coincidentally, it's about an alien trapped on Earth after his spaceship's remote control is stolen. He's called PK because that's Hindi for drunk, which is what Ted Owens kind of sounds like. That sounds like a movie I need to check out. Uh, On Twitter, uh, AP Strange got in touch and uh, told me, reminded me, um, because I'd completely forgotten when I did the episode, that the Northeast blackout Owens took credit for is interesting in that Donald Kehoe seemed to really want to prove it was a UFO event in his book, in his not so subtly titled book, Aliens from Space. And I'd forgotten all about uh, Kehoe really pounding the the anomalous nature of uh, of that blackout and, 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 the, and it being a UFO event in, in that book. Emailer Lester says, what did he do for a living? Did SIs often drop diamonds? I doubt blackmailing sports teams paid well. As for what Owens did for a living, um, he gave lessons. He taught his technique to people. He made money that way. And this question dovetails nicely with some um, input from 
uh, our uh, our listener Gabriel McKee, who is who has been doing research on the Gray Barker archives, and he says, uh, just a quick note to thank you for the great Ted Owens episode, which is very timely for me personally, as I'm getting ready to write about Ted for my Barker book in the next week or so. Owens sent Barker dozens of letters from 1968 to 1978, many if not all of them, asking for money. And he tells me that I left out one of his favorite pieces of the puzzle that I didn't really know about, which is the SI disc that Barker's Saucerian Press gave away to anyone who sent in the coupon in the back of How to Contact Space People. Gabriel says, I've only seen one of them in the flesh, or plastic, I guess. It's from the, he sent along a picture. It's a, a, um, an ad for this is the disc that you can use to contact the SIs. Um, one customer sent it back because, quote, it had brought me nothing but bad luck, which is, which is hilarious. Um, so the question, what did Owens do for a job? He asked Barker for money. He made money off the books he wrote. He provided lessons in his technique. Mishlove studied his technique, for example. On Facebook, Kevin says, at the end, you said that Ted Owens was vindictive towards sport teams that didn't pay him protection money. Did he cause the Red Sox to blow the World Series in 1986? That would be outstanding if he was, um, if he was behind that. And one more comment from Patreon. Stewart says, I love this. I like how you mentioned at the end about the limits of coincidence. You could probably predict that a blackout would happen in September if you had a hot summer because maybe Ted learned that heat messes with the wires and causes more blackouts. However, the thing about making storms appear goes pretty beyond coincidence. Could it be possible that he had studied enough meteorology to find some likely times for these things to happen and then predict them? Possibly. But we can barely predict two weeks ahead accurately with all of our satellite technology. Yeah, it's the, the Ted Owens thing really is... One of those cases where I sort of sit back and say, I can't be too cynical about this. I can be sort of healthily skeptical, but I can also acknowledge that this is actually pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. So that was just a sampling of some of the feedback we got. Uh, People seem to like the Ted Owens episode, which I'm not going to say it surprises me, but um, I'm always sort of surprised when, when people like any of it, <laughs> actually. So thank you for uh, your attention to Ted Owens and the PK man. He would be, I think, gratified with the response. But for right now, let's get back to John Keel and a couple more articles from Saga Magazine. We pick things up in January 1968 with an article entitled Strange Messages from Flying Saucers. And the beginning sort of of big letters, not quite the headline, but sort of description says, for years, contactee stories with all their ridiculous details were credited to the crackpot fringe. But within the last few months, professional UFO investigators quietly returned to the subject and came up with some fantastic discoveries. Oh my goodness. Well, It might be within the last few months, but the stories are from all over the place. And he starts off, Kiel starts off with a story from Argentina in August of 1957. An Argentinian Air Force plane crashed, and the Air Force sent three men to the site to guard the wreck. Two of them went into town for supplies. A third one stayed behind and heard an eerie high-pitched hum. He stepped outside of his tent and saw a huge luminous metal disc hovering directly overhead. He reached for his pistol, but could not draw it from the holster for some unknown reason. Standing transfixed, tugging helplessly at his gun, the young man heard a soft voice coming from the humming object. It addressed him gently in his own language and told him not to be afraid. 
Then it went on to tell him that it was an interplanetary spacecraft and that a base for such craft had been installed in the nearby province of Salta, an area where UFO sightings have been reported constantly for the past 15 years. We intend to help you, for the misuse of atomic energy threatens to destroy you. The voice went on to say that very soon the rest of the world would know about flying saucers. Then the bushes and trees began to rustle, and the craft shot straight up and disappeared. Keel explains that the young man was understandably freaked out. He reported it in full to he reported the experience in full to his commanding officer, who took him seriously. The story appears in Argentina's largest and most respected newspapers, Keel says, and later it would be translated into English and published in Flying Saucer Review, the British uh, scholarly-ish Flying Saucer Journal. Now, Keel asks, is this story and the many others like it pure hogwash, or is it possible that the unidentified flying objects are making contact with bewildered earthlings? He will go on to explore some more stories like this, and what's interesting is that in this article about contact with saucer beings, you don't see, apart from one reference to George Adamski, you don't see any discussion of the traditional 1950s and 60s flying saucer contactees. Rather, we have, for example, actors finding themselves contacted by extraterrestrials. Consider the tale told by movie actor Stuart Whitman, a star of many films. According to Mr. Whitman, he was trapped in his 12th floor suite in a fashionable New York hotel during the big blackout of November 1965 when he heard a sound like a whippoorwill whistling outside his window. He looked out and saw two luminous disc-shaped objects, one blue, the other orange. At least that's what he later told Hollywood communist Vernon Scott. Then he heard a voice which sounded as if it were coming from a loudspeaker. They said they were fearful of Earth, Whitman explained, because Earthlings were messing around with the unknown quantities and might disrupt the balance of the universe or their planet. The blackout was just a little demonstration of their power, and they could do a lot more with almost no effort. They said they could stop our whole planet from functioning. No one else in the crowded streets of darkened New York reported seeing these objects, and no one, apparently, heard that loudspeaker. But Whitman sticks to his story. Why is anybody's guess? He certainly doesn't need publicity. At least, not that kind of publicity. Now, unlike most of the actors that are mentioned in articles from the 1950s and 60s, I thought I remembered Whitman from somewhere, and so I, I looked him up on the internet, and he's been in almost everything over the years. And uh, probably the thing I remember him most from is being Jonathan Kent in that horrible syndicated Superboy TV series in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. Boy, that show was um, was bad. But I watched every episode, obviously. Keel mentions some additional contactee stories from South America and goes in depth on some of the uh, stories of airships during the uh, late 18. 90s, which we've covered here on The Saucer Life and also over at Great Lakes Lore. He talks about the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. He talks about other stories that, that really are more abductions than, than contactees. But there's an interesting story that he ends the article with um, that, uh, that has a, a man in England who uh, named J James Cook, which might be real. I don't know. Maybe not the famous explorer. But Regardless of which James Cook this is, uh, he was outside at 2 o'clock in the morning on September 7th, 1957. Object, luminous object, came down from the sky, turned from blue to white, then blue, then dark red, 
landed on the ground a few feet in front of him, and a voice came out of the craft, inviting him aboard. A ladder descended from the object, and the voice instructed him, Jump onto the ladder. Do not step onto it. The ground is damp. He obeyed and jumped onto the ladder and entered an empty chamber illuminated by a dazzling light from some unseen source. The voice then told him to take off his clothes and put on the plastic-like coveralls which were in the chamber. Again, he did as he was told. After he had changed his clothes, he was asked to leave the craft and enter another one that had landed nearby. There he found twenty people, all of them much taller than he was, and they took him for a ride into outer space. Their craft could not operate in damp weather, they allegedly explained to him, apparently because they were surrounded by some kind of electrified field. They also told him that the saucers were only used in the vicinity of Earth and could not operate in outer space. The inhabitants of your planet will upset the balance if they persist in using force instead of harmony, Cook claims he was told. Warned them of the danger. Cook protested that nobody would listen to them if they try if he tried to warn people of the danger. And um, one of the other spacemen was irritated that they don't that humans don't listen to anybody else either. Uh, later, he was dropped um, off back at the very spot where he was first picked up. Cook told his story to the authorities and then quietly returned back to his life. And Keel says, quote, like the majority of all known contactees, he did not write any books or go on any lecture tours, end quote. And I think this is really interesting. And I should probably plow through a bunch of old FSRs at some point and, and put together a, a sort of one-time contactee episode because there are a huge number of stories of contactees who have these little encounters. And then that's it. And the messages are often very much like what the, the big name contactees had uh, had talked about, but there's no books, no lecture tours, Nothing like that. Just a weird little encounter with somebody in a plastic jumpsuit. So what's the verdict on these contactees? Keel has some fairly strong opinions based on his research. Are these contactee stories the product of neurotics and psychopaths? The author has interviewed over a score of little-known contactees in the last year and has discovered some bewildering patterns. Most of these people interviewed were men and women with very low IQs and very little education. Their imaginations were very limited and they had read no science fiction. Until recently, UFO books and flying saucer literature was quite scarce and not generally available to such people anyway. Usually people in this group have an identity problem. They are nobody, and they have absolutely no chance of ever becoming somebody. Often they lean toward belief in the occult and the pseudosciences and their search for self. They are, in short, highly gullible, and a perfect setup for any plan which promises to make them somebody. They are also ready to accept anything they might be told. They are not liars or fabricators, but they are natural victims for those who are liars and fabricators. If a flying saucer were to stop one of these people, they would be apt to believe anything they were told. And because the contact would suddenly make them somebody in a world that hardly knew they existed, and would be eager to please and would willingly carry out any mission asked of them. I do have to wonder if Keel was administering these IQ tests himself? Hmm... Interesting. So he goes on to explain that that basically the pattern of, of sightings and everything with UFOs over centuries, he says, makes it clear that UFOs don't want their presence known. So why would they contact some people and not others? He says, suppose some of these contactees were telling the truth and not just fakes. What kind of truth have they told us? Fake planets? planets in the solar system that can't actually support life, things are weird. And then he makes a 
actually very interesting point. He says, quote, whatever the UFOs are up to, they are doing it on a very large scale all over the earth. And it is inevitable that they should accidentally come into contact with some of us from time to time. When such contacts occur, they deliberately hand out ridiculous false information. It is time that we got wise to this simple psychological stunt. They've been pulling it on us for centuries. They have been buying time with our stupidity to allay the possible suspicions of the believers. The UFO occupants have also been spreading messages of peace, and many of the cultists refer to them happily as the brothers from outer space. Let us remember that a Japanese peace mission was sitting in the waiting rooms in Washington while Japanese bombers were on their way to Pearl Harbor, end quote. So if you've read John Keel's books in the, the later 60s and into the 1970s, where he's talking about the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis and very sort of esoteric things, it may surprise you to, to read or hear things like this, where he, he's talking about basically, not just in this article, but in some other ones, as, as we'll see, the UFO people are planning an attack. Here, comparing them to the Japanese on, on the eve of World War II. A bit panicky, I think. And along those same lines, we've got the last article we're going to look at today from the April 1968 issue of Saga, Secret UFO Bases Across the U.S., Top Secret, Evidence of Strategic Alien Bases. And Keel's basic argument here is that, you know, there are, there are places where there are, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy amounts of concentrated UFO sightings. He has some maps that... Um, sort of look at Jacques Vallée's research into the airship mystery in 1897, concentrated from sort of Texas up to Michigan, sort of in that middle part of the United States. He's got other maps based on Blue Book reports and his own research that show various concentration areas. So he wonders if this could indicate there are places where there are bases from which these UFOs are operating. And he says that you know, the problem with UFO reports and the UFO sightings is that there are so many different types. There are craft that land. There are contact cases. There are humanoids. There are non-humanoids. There are different kinds of, of encounters that people have. So it's difficult to get any sort of cohesive view of these things. But the variety of cases might provide a clue as to what we may actually be dealing with. The unbelievable scope of the UFO phenomenon provides such a broad spectrum of contradictory data that it is possible, even probable, that several different groups are involved. The little men that have been reported may not be at all related to the nine-foot-tall giants who have also allegedly been seen. However, there is abundant historical and archaeological evidence to indicate that both giants and dwarfs once inhabited many parts of the world. Giant coffins containing the bones of nine-foot-tall humans were unearthed in Central America in the 19th century. On the other end of the scale, traces of a civilization of dwarves have been discovered in South America, Africa, and even in the New England states. Who were these bizarre people and where did they eventually go? No one seems to know, and scientists sweep these erratic artifacts under their carpets. Clergymen, on the other hand, point to the Bible in Genesis 6-4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. Researchers who have plunged into the vast literature on elves, fairies, and leprechauns have come up with equally fascinating cases carefully documented throughout history in which apparently sober and reliable people have actually seen little people. In many of these cases, the reported behavior of these little people is very similar to the behavior of the little men who have allegedly been observed around grounded flying saucer. Huh. The last S on flying saucers got cut off there on that clip. I wonder who could be behind such things. Well, there's some people who are behind 
all sorts of things, and Kiel brings them up here. They're some old friends of ours. One group of far-out cultists have advanced the theory that a super race of giants resides in caves deep toward the center of the earth, and that these duros, as they are called, not only operate flying saucers, but are also responsible for all our troubles, ranging from wars to epidemics of the flu. Yes, it's our old pal, the Dero. They are back again. He goes into the uh, the Shaver mystery a bit and then says, okay, so if there are people living below ground, if there are other groups and populations of, of creatures and beings that we're not generally familiar with, but that exist in our deep history and, and folklore and stories like that, what if they exist alongside the aliens and the extraterrestrial craft? Let's open Pandora's box a little further. If some of these larger craft are extraterrestrial, and if they are visiting our planet repeatedly without establishing open and direct contact with us, then they must have another unsuspected purpose. If some or most of the observed UFOs are based here, then it might be plausible to assume that the extraterrestrial visitors are engaged in social or commercial intercourse with the beings who occupy these theoretical bases. Those visitors may be coming from the home base of those other beings, if they are not from Earth, and may be bringing in supplies, additional personnel, etc., to establish new bases. Should this be the case, then the visitors might very well have hostile intentions. They could be busily setting up a sufficient number of secret bases preparatory to launching a sudden and totally unexpected attack against us. If the visitors come from a great distance, it might take them many years or even many centuries before their terrestrial bases would be strong enough to launch such an attack. Wow, Kiel is really into the, uh, the the flying saucers are on the attack paranoia there in 1968. Overall, this is another really interesting article that takes a lot of different ideas and different aspects of the UFO phenomenon at the time in the late 1960s, combines it with some of the folkloric stuff that you would get from Jacques Vallée and, and Passport to Magonia is, is, is probably not too far from being released in 1968. I can't remember exactly when it came out, but late 60s, early 70s, something like that. I should probably know that a bit more accurately. But you've got a a huge amount of existing information synthesized and speculated about, which sort of sums up Kiel's approach in these Saga magazine articles and indeed in some of his other work as well. Not always original research and investigation, but taking vast amounts of stories and information and synthesizing interesting ideas from it. And he did this in these articles in a way that was in-depth, but also approachable to the people reading in 1968. So I'll put a link in the show notes to where I got these. It's as always, the archives for the unexplained has a huge amount of things that are scanned and interesting and awesome. And so I will um, put a link to those in there. There's all kinds of great stuff from saga magazine, not just John Keel. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll address it uh, next week on our little feedback segment. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>